Turn to the book of Luke. It's coming. You got to love when the congregation's worried about that. Aren't we going to do the tithe? Usually that's the pastor. Oh no, he's forgetting. No, we're, because of the nature of this sermon, we're doing things slightly differently this week. So we'll be worshiping soon. But we're going to go to Luke chapter 18, excuse me, 19. Luke chapter 19. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 28 through verse 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat yet. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and they were untying the colt, and its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the reality of this, that we're not just studying some story, but this is a true and historic account of you who had set your sight upon Jerusalem, destined to die upon the cross for our sins. God, we're so thankful for you. We're thankful for your son. And we're here, Lord, to worship you, to learn of you, to set our attention on you. And we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. We pray, God, that you would speak through even the likes of me, God, that your truth might be brought to light, that your church might grow and be drawn closer to you, our King. And so I pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O our King and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Weddings are kind of a big deal in America, right? I mean, they they always have been, but more and more now. I've noticed, like, well, maybe we are an unfair uh, uh, comparison to you since we are a a church meeting in a school. We don't have our own facility, but I haven't done a wedding inside a church building in a long time. All the weddings that I do now are always outside, and there's always this, we need to get the most beautiful setting that we can get, and and, and it just becomes this huge thing. We got shows like, what's the show? I don't even remember the name. It's like Bridezilla or something like that. Uh, uh, stories about just incredible elaborate weddings and about the money spent on them. There's a certain sense where we, we have a great fascination and affinity towards weddings. I mean, who doesn't love them? Their weddings are, are great events. Weddings are expensive events. Maybe you don't love them quite as much if you're a dad, if you're a dad of a daughter in particular, right? If you're a dad of a daughter in particular, I got two little girls, and I'm starting to see how expensive weddings are. And uh, actually, a good friend of mine who's assistant pastor at Community Bible Church here in Central Point, um, he has a son about the same age as one of my daughters, and so we're already working something out for the future. Um, and we're working out bride price and all this stuff, because I, I'm going to end up stuck paying for this thing, and I see what they cost. I'm going to need to work ahead on this, right? Planning. Plan ahead. Uh, The ant plans for winter, I think the Bible says. So uh, that's what I'm doing. Weddings are, they say the average wedding in America now costs $27,000. $27,000, average wedding in America. But it could be worse. You could be part of the royal family. The royal family in England. Now, weddings in England, especially with regards to the royal family, huge deal. 
Huge deal. We all remember still 2011. They call it still to this day the wedding of the century where Kate Middleton married Prince Charles. And it was a massive, massive wedding. Prince Charles? No. William. Whatever. Who cares? (laughs) They're all cousins. It doesn't matter. Um, No. Just kidding. Just kidding. I got that from an English friend. I was allowed to say that. But no. Prince it's Prince, whatever. <laughs> Back on track, people. Come on. This is church. Um, 1,600 people attended that wedding, but, but that's, that's not really where the, the big impact was. 1,600 people attended that wedding. Um, they say 18 million people watched it online. Um, so the, all you guys at work that day, I know what you're watching, 18 million people on their laptops watching it. They see as many as some 400 million people worldwide between in person, online, or on television or rebroadcast actually watched that wedding. 400 million people. If that's accurate, it makes it the largest watched event in the history of mankind. And there's other actual uh, uh, Estimates that say it could be upward as high as 2 billion, which is just ridiculous. But huge event. They say, let me give you some of the numbers of what they spent on this. Kate's wedding gown was $434,000. The wedding cakes, you know how much they spent on just two wedding cakes? 80 grand on two wedding cakes. Cake boss, right there. Um, The cost just of security to do that wedding, and this particular cost, by the way, because of the way England structures stuff, is paid by the taxpayers. So security for that wedding was $33 million that day. $33 million. Um, But it's okay, don't feel too bad for them. Because the amount of people that flocked to London for that wedding uh, and the tourism that that generated is unbelievable. Um, Just on the date of the wedding, which was April 29th, they expected that tourists, just on that day alone and in London alone, spent $82 million above what tourists would have normally spent during that time. And the total revenue expected from that royal wedding in 2011 was over $825 million just for that wedding. So suddenly $27,000 ain't so bad, right? Could always be worse. Of particular note, too, is that the wedding was more than just the event inside the church. There was the procession. And in the royal wedding, as is in some weddings, the procession itself is a huge part of what happens. In London, they made their way from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey, where the the wedding took place. I I think the route's only like a mile or so. It's a really short route. But there were over 500,000 people that lined the streets of this route to wave and cheer and to be able to catch a glimpse of them as they made their way to the wedding for the wedding ceremony. Now, as much attention as that wedding garnished, and as important as that was in so many people's eyes, it pales in comparison to the importance of the procession that we're seeing here today. It's helpful to think of a wedding when in lots of different biblical cases, but in this one in particular. If you ever wonder, why is it that Christians are so caught up about weddings? Why do they put so much emphasis on marriage and all of these kind of things? You need to understand that marriage and weddings are central and important themes in the Bible. The Bible starts out with a wedding. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam, who's created on his own, he's by himself, he doesn't have that partner, he doesn't have that fellowship, and God creates Eve, and it says that Adam, or excuse me, God brings Eve to Adam. It's the, it's the first wedding. All you dads who take your daughter and walk her down the aisle to give her away, you're doing that in remembrance and following the pattern that God himself established from the very beginning. Marriage is presented as a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Weddings and marriage in particular, the kind of unconditional love that says, I am with you forever, that I'm not in this to get what I can get out of it, but I'm in this relationship because I love you and I want to bless you and I want to take care of you and I'm never going to leave you is a picture of what Jesus Christ does for us, that he loves us, that he blesses us, that he takes care of us, that he gives his life for us. And then the church even is referred to as what? The bride of Christ. The church collectively is referred to as the bride of Christ. And you know, in a wedding, really the most important moment, or the most important moment, I guess, would be the declaration of man and wife, but the most anticipated moment in a wedding isn't that. The most anticipated moment in the wedding is really when the bride appears, is it not? 
She's been away on her own. She's being prepared. She's being adorned for her wedding. No one's seen her. And then the music plays and everyone stands up and the doors open up and that bride comes walking in and everybody oohs and ahs. That's really the most anticipated moment in most weddings. Well, likewise, the scriptures tell us that the day is coming when rather than doors opening and a bride coming forth, the skies are going to open and Jesus Christ, the groom, will come for his bride, the church. That there will be a time when Jesus comes, he's been away preparing, but he is coming to take his church and we're referred to as a bride adorned for her husband. So weddings are really, really important in scripture and this kind of understanding, this framework laid into the background can help inform our understanding of this story here on Palm Sunday. The story of Jesus and the triumphant entry as he came into Jerusalem. Earlier, the scriptures in Luke had declared that Jesus has set his sights for Jerusalem. He's no longer going from town to town to teach, to train his disciples. Now it's game time, if you will. And every step he's taking is making his way towards Jerusalem where we know it's going to end upon the cross where he's going to give his life in redemption of our sins. And so he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's coming into from Bethany in the area nearby into Jerusalem and we have this event celebrated on Palm Sunday known as the triumphant entry. Now, I want you to think about this. Maybe for some of you this will be a really new way of picturing this because for me, growing up Southern Baptist in Sunday school, my whole entire, I don't remember a time that I wasn't in church. So I've been through a lot of Palm Sundays by now, 41 of them actually, And so going through these, I've always had this picture in my mind of Palm Sunday as being, it's like this parade and Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and and there's these people there in Jerusalem and someone happens to look and go, look, that's Jesus. Hey, Jesus is coming. And then people are getting palm branches and crowds are coming and and word spreads and they're like, yeah, Jesus. And and maybe even kind of had this picture in my mind of Jesus in almost sort of an aw shucks kind of a way just coming in and the people are going, Hosanna, Hosanna. Oh, you guys, as he kind of rides in. That's kind of been my picture in my mind and and really what a lot of our Sunday school upbringing has kind of presented for us with regards to the triumphant entry, which is great, but the only problem with that is the Bible. (laughs) Because the Bible presents it really differently if we'll take the time to notice a few things along the way. So for example, one of the first things that we should notice with regards to the triumphant entry is that this is not an organic event that just sort of happened as Jesus came into town. This is strategic and planned. In the same way that no one would say, we're going to do our wedding on June 1st and we'll just see if people show up. It'll just be organic. We'll just, people will just kind of show up and it'll be what it is. No, you plan. There's invitations. There's a lot of work that's done by usually not the groom, but done to put the wedding together. Well, in the same way, Jesus is very intentional, dare I say, orchestrating everything that's going on. Um, A man named Albert Schweitzer once did a study uh, and released a book or paper, whatever it was, the study of the historical Jesus. And, And when he looked at this event, he said, Jesus Christ was a good man, but things got out of control and he sort of got crushed by the wheels of history as things just got blown out of proportion. That's just not true. Jesus is turning the wheels of history as this takes place. And so we see a few things. For example, he sends the disciples for a donkey, verse 29. It says, when he drew near to Bethany and Bethphage, or Bethphage, depending on which one you like, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go to the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You say this, the Lord has need of it. So first of all, Jesus intentionally tells his disciples, We're going into Jerusalem, I need a donkey. Here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna go over there and you'll find one, a young donkey. It's tied to a fence, go get it. Now, a lot of people tend to believe, or maybe the picture in your mind, is that Jesus, maybe by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, just knew there was gonna be a donkey over there supernaturally somehow, and the disciples went and got it. It's very possible, that could very well be the case. Um, but, But also very possible is this, These towns, Bethany, for example, very, very small towns right outside of Jerusalem. Towns that Jesus spent a significant amount of time in. Bethany is where Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus lived. 
And Jesus just did something in Bethany that was pretty remarkable with Lazarus, did he not? He raised him from the dead. And so word has spread throughout this whole area and this little bitty town, which we might equate more to an actually a neighborhood, frankly. You would know who had donkeys. You would know who had animals. You might know exactly where that is. Either way, Jesus is intentional about saying, I want you to go down there. You're going to find a donkey. I want you to go get that for me and bring it back here. He even says, you're going to meet resistance. And when they say, what are you doing? You tell them that the Lord has need of it. He knows this guy's going to know who he's talking about. I mean, fame of Jesus is really spread in this area since dead men started walking around. And so he says, you tell them that the Lord has need of You tell them I need a donkey. Secondly, think about this. Where is the crowd that celebrates and sings Hosanna to Jesus? Where are they from? Again, a lot of our picture is that this crowd kind of developed in Jerusalem. People in the city saw Jesus coming and began to sing and chant. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that the crowd that is singing Hosanna to Jesus actually gathered at Bethany and is coming with him into Jerusalem. It says they began to sing as he came. This is Jesus' disciples that are actually doing the singing and the chanting and the yelling and the, the, the proclamation of scripture. This is not just something that sort of got out of control. This was something that was planned. This was an event put together and sent. The issue is Jerusalem missed it. Jesus is going to go on to say, oh, Jerusalem, if you had just known, if you had just understood the day, you wouldn't have missed it. The people that are coming with him, the people that are waving the branches, the people that are singing, those are Jesus' followers as he's making, no no doubt some joined in, but the bulk of that crowd is Jesus' disciples making their way into the city in a very specific, very organized, very purposeful event. So what's the point of it? Like, why did Jesus need to do that? I mean, to fulfill scripture, yeah, we'll get to that, but, but what's the purpose? Because God doesn't do just random things just, you know, for the sake of doing something. There's, there's intention behind these things. God knows what he's doing. He's planned things from the very beginning of time. So why is Palm Sunday such a big deal that we even talk about it still to this day? Well, we can see it from the reactions of the people. What Jesus is doing is very intentional and very purposeful. This is an incredibly bold moment where Jesus is forcing upon the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, a decision. He's forcing their hand intentionally to make a decision. An incredibly bold moment. There's no aw shucks. There's nothing, no, nothing accidental or organic about it. It's very intentional. So consider, if you will, the context of the story. Just within the book of Luke, for example, in Luke 19, in this same chapter, Jesus has just met with a guy that we know well named Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. You know the story, right? And so he comes and he's there with tax collectors and sinners, and he's getting criticized for that. The the, the religious leaders are like, look at this guy. Look at these people that he's hanging out with. What is he doing? And Jesus makes a really significant response. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. The son of man is the title that Jesus uses to describe himself more than almost any other place in scripture. It's an Old Testament phrase, though, that comes from the book of Daniel. When Jesus says son of man, son of man is a title from Daniel that speaks to a character or a person who is given authority from heaven over the entire earth and who comes to the earth to judge and to reign. So when Jesus says, I am the son of man, He's making a declaration that is saying, I have been given authority over the entire earth by God. I mean, it would be the kind of thing that when he says it, the religious leaders would gasp in horror that he could make such a claim. This is what he does in Luke 19. And then in Matthew chapter 20, also right before this event, though not given in Luke's actual account, Jesus is making his way on to Bethany as he goes on into Jerusalem. And along the way, there's two blind men. And these two blind men hear that Jesus is coming through and they begin to shout out to get Jesus' attention and they say something that he's never, been, never allowed people to say before. They say, son of David, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, son of David. A son of David is a huge title 
to the Jewish people. Maybe even bigger in some regards than son of man. Because son of David is not just a, I'm from heaven, I've been given authority. Son of David is, I am the king. I am the king of Israel. I am the king of the earth. And it speaks to Israel's heritage, the lineage of the Messiah. It's a massive statement. No one would ever use that title to describe another person, ever. You gotta remember, the Jewish culture, they didn't even say God's name out loud because there was such reverence for it. So to point to someone else and say, that's the son of David, no way. And in fact, in the story, you see that. As these two blind men are yelling out, have mercy on us, son of David. It says that people were going over to them and they're saying, shut up. What are you doing? Stop it. You can't say that. But it says they just begin to yell even louder. Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us. And then Jesus stops, turns around, looks at them and says, yes, how can I help you? That's huge. Just think about it. How often have the disciples waited for Jesus to step up to that position of rule? How often have people that have seen what Jesus has done waited and tried, even tried to push him to be king, and he would step away from it and say no, and he would flee from the crowds, and now finally his time has come. Son of David, king of Israel. Yes, may I help you? So the disciples would be shocked. Finally, finally, this is what's going to happen. And we're going to Jerusalem, finally. See, what's happening here is really intentional. Look, Jesus is very humble, amen? He's very humble. In fact, the only autobiographical words that Jesus gives us about his personality, about his nature that Jesus himself speaks, he says, I am meek and lowly of heart. He says, I'm humble. And we see his life, he's humble, he's born to peasant teenagers who were, he's born in a barn. I mean, he, he lives in a town that is nothing. Like when people say, I found the Messiah, he's from Nazareth. The response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? No way. It'd be like, Klamath Falls, really? Are you sure? <laughs> Jeff at heritagefellowship.net is where you can send that complaint. Anyway, <laughs> But this is, this is, he's humble. He, he lives as a carpenter, as a carpenter's assistant. Even when he becomes this, known as this rabbi, he's an itinerant rabbi. He's traveling from place to place, doesn't even have a home. He's couch surfing. This is the humble king we have who came not to be served, but to serve. He's humble. But listen, to quote Tim Keller, listen, he's humble, but he's not modest. He's not modest when it comes to his claims of who he is. Because the claims that Jesus makes are huge. Absolutely huge, the claims that he makes. I mean, think of it like this. In Matthew's account of today's, this story, of the Palm Sunday story, the triumphant entry. In Matthew's account, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, like we're studying, and then he goes right to the temple. And when he comes into the temple, he finds the money changers. You know the story most likely. Taking advantage of people, ripping them off. They're a barrier to worship and they've just made God's house a disgrace. And what does he do? He says, what are you doing in my house? He comes into the temple, says, it's my house, and then he rearranges the furniture. (laughs) Who would do that? Who would do such a thing? If you invited someone to your home or to their home... Let's try that again. If you invited someone into your home for dinner, if they came in and said, ah, I'm going to make my, I mean, we say make yourself at home, but we don't really mean it. (laughs) These drapes got to go. We don't do that. But that's the kind of claim that Jesus makes when he comes into the temple. This is my house. He tells the apostles, when you go in there and get the donkey, they're going to say, hey, who are you taking this colt from? Then he's going to say what? Tell them the Lord has need of it could have said Jesus. They knew who Jesus was. He says, no, no, no. Tell them the Lord has need of it. Even the very choosing of a donkey. I I mentioned earlier this idea that there were things written, uh, uh, prophetic scriptures written about Jesus when he comes in. Zechariah 9.9 says this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, even the foal of a donkey. So it had been written hundreds of years previously that Jesus would come in on a donkey, on a colt, into the city. And so when Jesus says, get me a donkey, there's a purpose behind that. He's making the declaration to the religious leaders and the people of Israel that he is the one that this passage has pointed to for all time. He's saying, I am king, I am God, I am Lord. And he's entering the city in such a way that he is now forcing a decision on the people of Israel. Here's why this event is so important. Jesus forces a choice to the people of Jerusalem, to the religious leaders in particular of Jerusalem. Rejoice in me or reject me. Crown me or kill me. But there's no more middle ground. There's no more just put up with me. There's no more maybe I'll just go away. There's no more, we'll just keep an eye from a distance. You either are going to king me and recognize me for who I am or kill me, but no more middle ground. And this is the decision that Jesus Christ puts to Medford, Oregon as well. There's no middle ground. It's reject Jesus and the claims he makes, or it's rejoice and worship Jesus as one of his followers, and that's it. And you got to understand, the way that he presents this and the claims that he's making give them no other choice. I mean, he's saying, I'm king. Well, to the Roman people who were in charge at that time, to make a claim as king, unless you're Caesar, that's treason, and treason it was punishable by death. To the Jewish people, he's saying, I'm God, I'm Messiah. That's blasphemy. Blasphemy is punishable by death. So, he's either right in his claims, or he's false and deserves death. And at this point, there's no other option. Now, now that, that seems harsh to say, and that's the same thing he does to us today. Receive him or reject him. Crown him or kill him. There's no middle ground. And, and it makes us even uncomfortable to think about. And I think the reason is, is because we've had a lot of people in the middle ground in our country for a long time. We've had a lot of people in our country for a long time that like Jesus. They respect Jesus learn from Jesus, would claim Jesus, and even if they get into trouble, might call out to Jesus. But don't submit to Jesus. That their life doesn't, doesn't follow Jesus. And so he's, he's more of a resource than a ruler, if that makes sense. This happens a lot in our culture. And, and right now, there, there's a lot of people that, that do really freak out within the Christian community. And, and, and Christians, this message in many ways is really for you. Next week is very outreach. It's for all of us, but certainly for those who would come and hear. But look, this is for you. This is your Easter message, all right? Because there's a lot of people that, that they see the direction that our country's going and they freak out. And oh, everything's going secular. But if you actually look at some of the studies being done, that's not true. There, there's not people leaving the church as much as we often give credit for. What's leaving is the middle ground. What we're losing are the people who are just safe observers of Jesus. Who, for them, Christianity is maybe ceremonial and you go at special services and you want a pastor to do your wedding and that kind of a thing. Or, or maybe Christians who it's more cultural. This is just what we do. Um, we go to church. This is what we've always done. It's just what I always do. But, but it's not conviction Christianity. This is, this is what I believe. This is who he is. And this is who I must follow. That middle ground's leaving. But because as our country does change, and it is changing, it becomes a lot harder for that middle ground to exist. It becomes a lot less comfortable to claim Jesus and, and not follow Jesus when some of the things regarding marriage or other issues coming down the pipe at us fast, they're forcing our hand in much the same way. So it's not that we're losing Christians, it's that we're losing the middle ground here. And you say, but that just still, it just seems harsh to say that there's no, but, but think of it. One of the funniest stories in the whole Bible is in Acts chapter 19. It's called the story of the sons of Sceva. And there's these men who had been watching the apostles of Jesus Christ go around and casting out demons and doing all these just amazing things by the power of the Holy Spirit. They thought, that is awesome. I, I want to do some of that. And so they go up to this guy that's possessed with demons and they go, by the power of Jesus and the one who Paul calls upon, we command you demons, get out of him. And they're not followers. 
They've just seen what these other guys have did, so they'll go, hey, just like Paul, just like Jesus, you demons, get out of that guy. And they step back ready to watch. And like really one of the greatest lines in all the Bible, and it's weird to say because it's a demon that says it, but this demon looks at him and says, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? And then the demon pounces on them, beats them up, and sends them out of the place naked. I mean, the stories I want to see on the big screen, that ranks high when we get to heaven. You know what I'm saying? Blurred, of course, but still. But, but do you see what's being said even in that story? The power of God, the power of Jesus Christ is saying, look, I, I'm, I won't be used. I won't be just some tool to help you. Like, if you're not submitted to me, if I don't reign over your life, then I'm of no benefit to you. I mean, Jesus, doesn't he say it himself? I would that you were either hot or cold, but you're lukewarm, and so I'd rather just spew you out. If you're hot, you're on fire for me. If you're cold, at least you're angry. You're talking about me. At least you hear what I'm saying. But it's that middle ground that becomes so dangerous because Christianity becomes comfortable and normal, and we don't hear the claims, and so we can trick ourselves into feeling like we're covered because we're just walking through the motions of day-to-day life. I'm telling you, our country's changing. And that's not going to be as easy. And look, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Is it going to be hard? Yeah. Should we fight against changes and all those things as Christians? Do the best we can to promote Christian values? Of course. But Jesus can work easier in a cold heart than he can a lukewarm heart. And so what Jesus does here in this case, he comes to them and he pushes this on. He says, look, unless I'm king, I'm of no advantage to you. You either crown me or you kill me. And we see this in the reactions of the people. There's two reactions that come from this procession, from this day. Number one is rejoicing. Reaction number one is rejoicing. There's great rejoicing. And the people do it in two different ways. This is worship. And so the people worship Jesus in two ways. Number one, they worship by giving, by generosity. So the guy goes and gets the colt. When the guy gives of his colt, remember, that's a big deal. That's wealth in, the, in an agrarian society. It's wealth in a small village like that. To just give of your colt like that, that's a big deal. So he just, whatever's mine is yours. The Lord needs it. The Lord gets it. And, and then the disciples come and they look at the colt and they're like, this isn't good enough. He doesn't have, he doesn't have a saddle. What are we going to do? And so what do the disciples do? It says they take off their cloak and they put the cloak on the back and they begin to wrap them around the donkey to make sure Jesus has a place to sit. I mean, in passing, it seems like it's not such a big deal, but your cloak, it's a big deal. You only had one unless you were incredibly wealthy. And it's not just a jacket, especially for a group of people who are essentially homeless traveling from town to town. Your cloak was your protection from the elements. It was your jacket. It was your sleeping bag. It was your pillow. It was your mattress. You needed your cloak. But these guys take and they wrap this thing around them and they just say, Jesus needs it, he gets it. But what's awesome and amazing for us to notice here is that their generosity becomes infectious because now Jesus starts down the road. He's riding on the donkey. There's all those cloaks there. Anyone would have noticed that. And what are the other people doing? Well, what can I do with my cloak? And then suddenly they're taking their cloaks off and laying them on the ground for the donkey to walk across as he's going down through there. This generosity that's happening there is completely infectious. And you got to understand, these are poor people mostly. These aren't people of great means. And they're given of whatever they have in worship to the king. Whatever is mine is yours. And this isn't just me, in case you're wondering, Jeff's preaching a tithing sermon. No, listen, this isn't just me pulling this out of context. You you need to understand, even in the flow of Luke in general, this is a building theme. In Luke 18, one chapter earlier, we have the story of the rich young ruler, a man who had incredible wealth, and he came to Jesus, and what does he say? I'll do anything to follow you. I've kept all the laws. I've done everything right from day one. I observe all the commandments. And Jesus says, okay, then one more thing. Sell of your possessions, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the scripture says that he turned away and walked away sad. Why? Because Jesus wasn't Lord of everything in his life. Money was. Money was his security. Money was his wealth. Money was his, his provision. Money was his God. 
And so he couldn't say, Jesus is Lord of all. You guys, you know the song, especially those of you that grew up in the Baptist church maybe, I surrender all, remember that? I surrender all except for this. I surrender, remember that? How many times we've sang that thing? And maybe our heart's not been in that place. And then, then it's contrasted because then it goes right into the next chapter, Luke 19. And you have the story I mentioned earlier of Zacchaeus, who had been living on the just filthy rich because he'd been taking advantage of everyone. And what does he end up doing? He gets saved. His life is completely changed. Jesus is now Lord of his life. And he says, I'm not just going to give back the money that I took from people. I'm paying them back fourfold. And there's this incredible generosity that just begins to take place in a new believer and follower of God. When we recognize the reality of Jesus as Lord, we need to understand that Jesus becomes Lord of all of us. And so we have to take that position. We need to pray that we would have hearts willing to take the position that says, Lord, all I have is yours. In my home, how can I worship you with my home? In my clothing, how can I worship you with my clothing? In my money, how can I worship you with my money? My car, whatever it might be, it is all available to you and a resource for the kingdom of God. How can I worship you? And it's not just money that's doing this. They're also worshiping through song. Turn, if you would, to uh, keep your finger there, but turn to Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Psalm 118. As Jesus is coming into the city, the people begin singing. They begin chanting, they begin declaring, and they're not just making up a song on a whim. It's not just like something they said, hey, let's say this. They're declaring scripture. They're speaking from Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, the middle chapter of the entire Bible, turn right to the middle, you'll be there. Beginning in verse 19, look what it says. And think of the story we're looking at in relation to what they're singing. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter in through them, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is what they're singing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a really important song. Not just scripture, song in the Jewish community and in the culture at that particular time. Charles Spurgeon tells us that this psalm was used to describe either David or some other man of God who was appointed by divine choice and divine counsel to a high office in Israel. This elect champion found himself rejected by friends and fellow countrymen, and at the same time opposed by his enemies. In faith, in God, he battles for his appointed place, and in due time he obtains it in such a way as to greatly display his power and the goodness of the Lord." He then goes up to the house of the Lord to offer sacrifice and to express his gratitude for God's divine hand as all the people bless him. This becomes a huge psalm, especially in light of what's going on right here. This is a psalm that would be used even culturally when a king would go out to fight on behalf of the city who stayed behind. The king would go off into battle, defeat the enemy, and when he would come back into the city, they would sing this psalm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who has brought salvation upon us. And they would rejoice and worship and sing. Literally sing the praises of their king who had protected them. So let me ask you this. Just think with me for a second. Who's your hero? Childhood hero, growing up hero, whatever it is. Your, your favorite sports team, your favorite athlete, your favorite musician. Think about how we honor them. Think about how we adore them. Think about how we treat them. We get together usually in a large group, okay? So let, let's say you're, it's a sports guy. The bigger the star, the bigger the crowd. If it was high school, it's going to be a smaller group. If it's college, it's a little bigger. If it's pros, it's a little bigger. The level of stardom of the person, even within music, all of that stuff, tends to determine how big the crowd is that gathers together. And so all the people come together in the same place. 
spend a lot of money, give of their money to come into that place to see that performance. I don't know if you've bought professional sporting event tickets or concert tickets. It's unbelievable how expensive some of that stuff is now. So we get all the people together. We've paid all this money. We get there, and what do we do? We rejoice. We sing. We get t-shirts with their face on it or jerseys with their name on the back. We lift their hand, our hands in the air. And what are we saying? We're saying, my team, my athlete, my, Michael Jordan, whoever your guy is, he is awesome. This sounds a lot like church, doesn't it? See, people want to say, well, worship's a Christian thing. No, worship's not a Christian thing. Worship's a human thing. The only difference is what we worship. We were created to worship. It comes naturally to all of us. Romans says, though, you're either worshiping the creator God or you're worshiping created things, which eventually detail or, uh, detours down to the tr- just self-worship, frankly. I'm my own God. I'm my own king. But when church gathers together, the purpose of our gathering together here, we are to declare Jesus Christ as king, just as Jesus, when he comes into the city, he is forcing their hand, he is declaring, I'm God, I am king, I am Lord, what's your response? And that's what the church does. When we gather together, we are here to worship him in our possessions, in our money, and in song. It's natural to us to lift our hands and sing and rejoice in enthusiasm. Heritage, can I please continue to push you here? That we worship Jesus with enthusiasm. Now, you say, well, I sing. I know. I mean, I, again, I grew up Baptist church. We had, let's see, I think it was the organ was on this side, and the piano was on this side, and we had this. Praise God. Remember the bald guy? From whom all blessings flow. What's the point of all of this? I, I, I don't know, but that's what we had. That's what we had. Minister of music, did all that stuff. Not making fun. Yeah, I am. But, <clears throat> but I sang my whole life. Sang songs my whole life. I didn't start worshiping until I was in my 20s. And I'd gone to a church that was a little more, you know, I came from like full-on conservative Southern Baptist. I came to a church, Calvary Chapel Movement, Applegate Christian Fellowship here in town. It was a little more uh, charismatic in its worship style for sure. Now, I had been to like full-on charismatic, like charismaniac kind of, you know what I mean? Like, like the kind where my grandmother's church, it was called the Candler House of Prayer, and everyone came in with tambourines, and you knew when service was going to start because people started stretching. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> You know, all that kind of stuff. And you're just like, what is going on in here? You know? But, but I'm talking about, a, to me, especially as a kid, that just seemed weird. But, but there was a time in my 20s when I was in an environment where people were singing. And I started seeing hands lifted up. And, and here's how I started. And this is how the progression tends to go. I came in. And I'll just do this. I, I don't know the songs. So I'll just kind of, I like the music. It's better than an organ. Um, so I'll just do this. Or maybe as I grew, I look spiritual, I'll just pray. Or you guys know this one when you're tired. Some of you did it today. You know that one? I'll just move my mouth. It looks like I'm singing. Do some of that. As time goes on, though, and this is what happens, man, you can see when God's changing hearts. The next thing you know, you start to sing. But I ain't raising my hands. I ain't doing that. Unless somebody pulls a gun, my hands are in my pocket. <laughs> but you know what? I said that generosity is infectious. Worship is infectious. Because I was in that room, standing there with my wife. We might have been outside. I don't remember where the service was. I got my eyes closed. I'm singing at this point with my eyes closed, so you know I mean it. And I'm <laughs> saying. So I'm singing, and I felt some movement to my right. <gasps> my wife had her hands in the air. Oh, no! She's one of them. <laughs> oh, no. And I just remember, I was sort of freaked out, I'll be honest. Like, we're going to end up talking about this in the car. <laughs> but I learned through the example of Christians around me, through the example of my wife, I learned to worship. But I resisted it for a long time. And it wasn't until I was in a time in life where within my job, I was in a really dark place. 
and I had no answers for anything, and I didn't know what to do, and someone had loaned me a third day, it was called, I'll never forget, it's called Offerings, the CD, mostly live stuff, and they're like, oh, this is a good Christian band, I'm like, yeah, I've heard that before, my mom, Petra, anyway, <laughs> sorry, I'm offending everyone today, um, <laughs> um, but, but he loaned me this CD, you got to listen to it, and I, I set it on the counter and then never touched it. And one day I came home and I was just at an end. I mean, my wife was in classes at the time, she was away at school, I was at home, tears in my eyes at an end, didn't know what to do. And there in my dark living room with that CD, I learned to worship. We need to worship with enthusiasm. It does matter. Do I have to sing? Yes. But, but not just sing. I'm talking about the engaging of our hearts and singing and declaring the reality that he is king and Lord of our lives and we are at an end and that there's nothing we can do apart from him and that everything we do needs to be focused on him. Even when you come into a place and you don't even feel that in that moment, it's that opportunity and reminder that says, it's not about me, it is about him and we lift our arms up maybe as a child lifts his arms up to his father and says, help me. Or as we would in a sporting event, and we would say, my hero is awesome. That's what worship is. That's what worship is. Next week, Easter Sunday, people will come in here that that have never seen worship before, or they only see it in these little windows. And, And if what they learned about Jesus only came from what they saw in your worship, what would they learn? Jesus is here. He's kind of real. Or he's everything. He's awesome. Worship is infectious. We got to close this out. But, but here's the issue here. That's one reaction. The other reaction to this was rejection. Because what do the Pharisees say? Tell them to knock it off. Tell them to stop the singing. Tell them to stop what they're doing. Tell them to knock it off. What did Jesus say? It's not going to do you any good. If I shut them up, the rocks are going to sing and that's just going to freak you out more. So we're, just let them sing. Just let them sing. So it's worship, adoration, or it's rejection. And that middle ground doesn't exist. I'll just be, a, I'll be an observer. I'll just hang out. I'll just watch. And, and the reason this is so important, and the reason that we should worship, is because Jesus makes the statement. It says in verse 41 of, of Luke 19, And when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. In the song that they were singing, it says in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he says, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The reason this is so important is because the scriptures make it clear we are born in sin and therefore we are enemies with God. The the middle ground does not exist. We're not neutral. That we are enemies with God because of our sin. We have sinned against a holy and loving God. But that Jesus comes and has come. Behold, your king has come and he has made peace with God available because of the cross. I mean, because just consider it for one last moment here. The disciples have been waiting for him to announce his kingship forever. And he comes in on a donkey. They have been waiting for him to start kicking tail and taking names and fixing all this from the very beginning. And he comes in on a donkey. What kind of king who's coming to declare his rule and reign, comes in on a donkey. I'll tell you, a king that's coming to be slaughtered. No one rides a donkey into battle and expects to live. He knew exactly what he was doing. And in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, going to the cross, well, we're on this side now, going to the cross on our behalf, carrying the weight of our sin and shame, and then Jesus raises again from the dead, he's alive And he's defeated sin. And he has made a way for peace with God. That was one of the things that was so different about worship that I experienced based on when I grew up. Because what I realized is these people sing like Jesus really lives. And all my singing before that, it wasn't like a wedding expecting Jesus to return for us at any moment. It was a funeral. Praise God from who? No. With enthusiasm. What we see in this passage is the model that has been set for us because here's the thing. This is a funeral procession coming into Jerusalem. It's not a wedding procession. But, but we line the streets now. We line the streets waiting for our king to come now. 
And even in the disciples, they didn't wait till he got to Jerusalem to sing. They sang along the way. They worshiped him. They knew. And he said to the other people, you missed it. Church, can I, as the guys are going to come up and they're going to lead us in worship, can I, just, can I just push you on this? Take this as an opportunity from the word of God this morning to realize that the same choice that faced the people of Jerusalem on that day faces us every day, really. But in particular, those of us who have not yet, and just hang on on the lights if you would, just for a moment. Um, I want to see you guys, but the same decision faces every single one of us. That Jesus has declared he is king. In the scriptures, we've seen it really clear. Has it been clear? Amen? He's king. He's saying it clearly. And so we have the same opportunity before us that the people did there. Will we respond in worship? Will we give of our tithes? Will we give of our offerings? Will we lay our life down before him again and say, Jesus, all I have is yours? Will we sing with our voices and declare of his goodness? Or will we reject? Because Jesus wept for the city of Jerusalem because he knew this. Their window was closing. And it wouldn't be very long before that city would be completely leveled. Before the very temple that they treasured would be gone. And he said, if you would have just known. And he says, if you would know the things that make for peace. And we have such a small window here. Life goes, my daughter is just turned 10 she got an iPad for her birthday. I was not ready for that. Grandma bought it. And what do you do? She sends it over and you give it to her. And, and I found myself realizing, my goodness, if she leaves the house at 18, then my time with her in my home is already half over. And I had tears in my eyes. I was thinking, there's so much more I need to show her. There's so much more that I want to teach her. It's not fair how fast the time goes. Have you ever felt that way? And we have such a small window right now. Our life is but a vapor. And eternity hangs in the balance. Will you worship Jesus? Will you recognize him as king? Will you lay your life down before him? Will you give him your everything and say, you are my king? Or will you reject him? Will you stand and bow your heads with me? Jesus, we stand here before you, the collective bride of Christ. Lord, in this particular place, Lord, as we come before you, as we worship, as we give of our offerings, as we sing of your praises, I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in the hearts of everyone here. I pray, God, for those of us who have drawn away from you or who have tried to be in that middle ground and just been comfortable with religion, I pray, God, that we would give over of our hearts, that, Lord, you would capture us and that we would be disciples and worshipers. Lord, for those who have resisted Jesus, I pray, God, that you would speak even to their heart by your spirit and change them. I pray, God, that you would bring many to the waters of baptism next week. I pray, God, that your kingdom would expand. I pray, God, that no one would 